it is possible for almost any parent to do better than what most schools around them have to offer for their child. But it's it's work. It's work. You've got to learn how to be a teacher. And it's it's not easy. And so it's possible, but it's work. And it's 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 work that's doable. Like it's not like, oh, it's work. It's you're gonna stress, you're gonna suffer. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like your expectation should be like this is a real project. Hello and welcome back to the Hannah Franklin podcast. In today's episode, I'm talking to Matt Bateman, the philosopher in residence and co-founder of Higher Ground Montessori, one of the largest networks of Montessori schools in the world. In a former life, Matt was a philosophy professor at universities. He's an expert in early childhood development, and he's been working in the Montessori world for years. In today's episode, we talk about what the Montessori approach is, where it comes from, how it fits into the broader landscape of what's happening in the alternative education movement. We talk about the history of education starting in the pre-classical era and how education has evolved or hasn't evolved from the education styles of the ancient Greeks to the education styles that we have today. We talk about things like how to motivate kids and how to create environments that encourage kids to learn and be creative and ask questions and grow. We talk about controversial topics like the culture wars and how they fit into the landscape of what's happening in education and whether or not educators really can be values neutral. We talk about things like whether or not homeschooling and unschooling are actually useful or not and how much structure is appropriate to provide for a child. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. Matt is an absolute wealth of information, and I hope you enjoy listening. When okay. you first moved into your new house like a month or two ago, you were tweeting about how you had all these pegboards set up for your like kitchen items and tools. And I forget what else, but there are a bunch of different things that you wanted out on display. And I feel like there's a deeper thread here that we haven't talked about, but there's a correlation between that, like your philosophy of your own home and how Montessori schools are set up as invitations for children to do different things is very deliberately set up. And I want to know more about both the connection between these two things, but also the philosophy of how you're setting up your home with small children in the house. Yeah, there's an affinity. I mean, Montessori classrooms don't have pegboards exactly, but but they do have open shelves. Like nothing is put away. So, um, um, yeah, I, I like pegboards, like to a kind of pathological extent. Where, uh, like, when we had a, our se- second child, our, our new son, when he was born a few months ago, um, I put his changing table on a tool workbench with an attached pegboard, and I put all of his diaper stuff and little pegboard bins, but also left most of my tools up there so you could like see the hammer and the drill and everything like that. Um, and then when we moved into the new home, um, I mean, I've always loved pegboards, but I installed pegboards in the kitchen, like Julia Child style. Um, I, there's a massive pegboard in our entry room just as you come in. Some of it's tools, but some of it's like um, my three-year-old's art supplies are neatly arranged in bins that are at the lower levels of the pegboard that she can access. And in the kitchen, on the kitchen pegboard, she has a few dedicated shelves too. When my son gets a little bit older, he'll have some dedicated space. Um, the reason, the kind of developmental, I mean, I like this just for me, but the developmental argument for it is um, I think that children should see tools, tools in a broad sense, tools in the sense of like, both like hammers and drills, the things that you would buy at Home Depot, which is a lot of what's on my pegboard, but also pots and pans, things that you make things with, pencils, like levels, 
um, scissors, just just the kind of tools of doing stuff around the house, of building things, of wrapping presents nicely, of sketching things out, of paying bills, of cooking meals, of like all the things that you use. It should be like, oh, these are the tools that we have to manipulate the world, to do things, and they're accessible. They're out. My parents use them. I can see them. They're not hidden away in a cupboard or hidden away in a drawer somewhere that I can't reach. Actually, most of this is where she can't reach, but she can at least see it. Both of my children can see it, and they're both interested in it. Sometimes they'll ask for things or ask what things are for. They'll see me take things down and use them. And um, and the, the kind of premise is um, that I want my children to learn the idea that the world is there's the shape. The world is pliable. The world is malleable. The world is buildable in. Um, it's not, they can do things with the space around them. It's not just, oh, there are tools, there are objects there that people have laid out for me and I get to use the ones that are within reach. It's like, no, you make the objects that are around you and, and a lot of what's in your environment properly is tools for further customizing and shaping your environment and kind of creating the things that you want. So, I mean, that's a deep premise in my worldview. And I think it's a deep premise if you're, if you're kind of interested in raising high agency people, people who are authoring their life, who are building a life for themselves. What does it mean to build a life for yourself? It means that you kind of arrange your world in a certain way, your relationships, your home, your work, your environment. It means that you are in your own way, whether that's literally with tools or in a more abstract, psychological, social, spiritual way, building your life. You're kind of arranging your life to be a certain way. And I don't think most people learn that lesson. No, they definitely don't. There's a really great Steve Jobs quote that's similar to the way that you just phrased that. It's something along, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something along the lines of, you know, when you realize that the world is, was built by people who are no smarter than you and you can build it too. And yep. it's, it's malleable and shapeable and you can, you can kind of make what you want out of it. Um, I think I was 18 or 19 when I, I was like just finishing high school. So probably 18 when I heard the interview where he talked about that and it just, cause it reaffirmed a lot of intuitions that I had from growing up homeschooled and seeing, watching my parents build the world that we were living in and then me experimenting with it and realizing that I could build things too. But it really just like to hear someone say that just kind of cracked my brain wide open and was really I think fundamental to how I started to engage with the adult world. Like that was a weirdly formative single quote to hear somebody say. And so it's a great quote. It's a really yeah, good it's quote. It's a great quote. It's spectacular. Yeah. Yep. And and I mean, and and this is just to kind of make the connection to Montessori in our in our schools, um whatever the age of the child, whether they're zero years old or 18 years old, because our schools are birth through high school. Um, this is something that we want to teach, not like teach in a, in a kind of like, you must accept this value. And if you don't repeat it back to me that the world is malleable and that you're, you're an agent, um, you know, we have failed as educators, but teach in the sense of like, it's implicitly guiding everything that we do. So for very young children, um, there are the, every single shelf in a Montessori classroom is an open shelf within reach of the child where things are arrayed neatly so you can see everything. It's accessible. It has affordances. It kind of perceptually calls to the child to be used. And many of the things, some of the things in a Montessori classroom are for study, for kind of like manipulation and exploration. Um, but a lot of them are things that you can do. Like it's like learning how to sew or learning how to prepare a meal. Um, for older students, the curriculum, the history curriculum is, I, I think, uniquely focused on um, people who invented things, who changed things, who... 
um, who kind of made a dent in the universe, to use another Steve Jobs quote, who um, that we, we do a lot with the history of ideas, but also the history of industry, of industrial progress, because that's such a concrete manifestation. Again, not all of our students, most of our students are not going to be engineers or industrialists, but studying that history, the yeah. history of people who said like, hmm, the world is running out of food, but maybe I can invent a new process to make artificial fertilizer. Like we don't just have to wait for nitrogen to replenish itself in the soil. And like, how do you do that? Like, how do you kind of set that as a goal and go about doing that? And what does that look like? I mean, that story is not one that most students learn in school, but it's part of our elementary school, middle school, high school curriculum. So both in terms of what they do, I think it's, I think ultimately you have to learn this by like acting in the world and shaping things. That's the way that you get this, but also to kind of be at the level of like, when you're learning history, your curriculum, your worldview, the kinds of things that you learn in school, they should also reflect this premise that like you can change the world. Um, you can make your, you can author your life. You can build the world around you. So you've been in education for many years. You've, and, and you've kind of seen a broad spectrum of the different education spaces. You've been a college professor. You've worked in the Montessori space. You have a background in philosophy, which makes you uniquely positioned to talk about a lot of the things that I want to discuss with you today. Um, but I want to talk first about why you ended up in the Montessori world. Like when you decided that education was what was interesting to you, why did you land on the Montessori model specifically? And also why adopt an existing model as opposed to innovating on what already exists? Um, so by the, by the last question, you mean like what, like why go, like why become a Montessorian as opposed to like, yeah, why, I'm going to do what makes sense, you know? Yeah, why, yeah. why become an advocate or a proponent of something that's already, that's already been built as opposed to building your own thing? Yeah. I mean, when I first saw a Montessori classroom about 10 years ago, so I have a lot of experience with young children. I'm in an early mm -hmm. childhood. Um, but I, I, and I had heard of Montessori. I studied developmental psychology, um, both at the undergraduate and graduate level. And I'd heard of Montessori, but like, I didn't really know what she was about. Like my parents had this, they were like one of my friends, younger brothers or something went to a Montessori school. And I remember when I was like six or seven asking my parents, what's a Montessori school? And they're like, it is an awful place where the, where the animals are in charge of the zoo and they're, and you know, anybody can do whatever they want. And chaos reigns. And I was like, oh my God, please don't send me to a Montessori school. And that was pretty much the last that I ever thought about it until, um, you know, 10 years ago. And when I saw the Mon a Montessori school, what I saw was a bunch of children, like 20, 24 children in this classroom with two teachers who were not doing that much. Like the teachers were both giving one-on-one -on -one lessons to particular children. So it's not like they were giving a big group lesson or directing the class or managing the class. This is a bunch of three to six-year-olds, probably skewed younger, like kind of in the three to five, three to four range because it was a new classroom. Um, and I remember when I was a child, I like would like work on Legos for like three hours at a time or like go out to a creek in South Carolina. I was raised in the pretty rural South and uh, I would like dam the creek and like catch salamanders and just be obsessed with like these little projects that I was doing. That's what I would do during my summers when I wasn't in school. And like, you'd have to like pull me away from the like, Matt, like eat some lunch. It's been like 16 hours since you've eaten. And I'd be like, no, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but that, you know, it was like, I wanted to do things that were interesting to me that I was deeply focused on. And these children, every single one of these children was like that. They were all focused, like to a child, maybe one or two were like wandering around or socializing a little bit, but the, the general atmosphere in the room was centered around this kind of deep focus. And they weren't playing with Legos. They were like working with the movable alphabet. 
or skip counting on the bead count. I mean, I didn't even have these terms at the time, but they, they were using Montessori materials to learn how to read, to learn how to do very sophisticated mathematical operations for, ch for children of their age. They were interested in these things and they were like obsessively counting and doing it and like you would have to pry them away. And I, I was just like, what the F is this? Like I've never seen, I've been in lots of preschool environments um, with lots of you know play-based learning and motivation. I, I've just never seen a result like this, I've seen results that I thought were like, at the time I thought were like good or okay. I've worked in those environments where like children are going from station to station and some children are working on literacy and other children are playing dress up and there's a lot of socializing and the children are basically happy. But I've never seen that marriage of um, like a classroom setting with that kind of um, really developmentally valuable concentration on academics. So I spent the last 10 years answering the question of what the F is going on here um, and trying to figure out what enables this kind of thing to happen can it how can it be systematized where did it come from and I'm, I'm trained as a philosopher as a historian of philosophy first and foremost and so my kind of natural way to study this question was like i'm going to read all of montessori's books and epistolary and critics and um, <laughs> can i interject with I've a very doing. obvious yeah. question which is if you can sum up the answer or at least the as close to the answer as you've gotten so far what is happening why is this working better than everything else you'd seen um so I, I mean at the simplest level it's you have to believe that what i saw is possible and and valuable like i don't think that everybody would naturally have the reaction that i had to seeing this classroom i think some parents would be like whoa this is like too stultified why aren't the children running around they don't look happy and i thought that they looked happy but like so so first there's the judgment that like mm -hmm. something these children are capable they're doing real things, they're in deep focus, and that is central. And so there's an argument for that. Like you have to kind of understand that and the argument for that if you don't get it intuitively. Um, second is three-year-olds can do this, which is just like, even if you think like, yes, it's great when Michelangelo paints the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and is in deep focus and has to be pulled away, but like a three-year-old can't do that. So believing that a three-year-old can do that, and ultimately I think zero-year-olds can do that. I mean, I've seen this with my own children, this kind of like, not for three hours, but for like 30 minutes, like deep focus on an activity. Um, and then third is how do you affect? So once you think this is possible and this is good, or this is good and this is possible, it's how do you kind of make it so that it's it's within reach of not just extraordinarily focused or ambitious or unusually self-directed or children of a certain temperament, but like, you know, 99% of children, like every child. And um, that takes engineering that takes very, very careful engineering of the environment, of the classroom environment, of the curricular materials, what kinds of curricular materials call to children and are amenable to this kind of deep focus and repeated activity. Um, you can get children excited with cupcakes, but cupcakes don't sustain focus. And you can get children to kind of like, you can come up with a curricular material where like children can work at it over and over and keep learning something new, but like they don't care, they're not having fun. So like, what is the kind of curriculum that affords this kind of happy focus? Um, and then what are the pedagogical practices that support it? Things like having a period where children can make the choice of what they work on for three and won't be interrupted for three hours. And, and you know, the, the idea being like, I don't know, like if, I don't know if you're like me, Anna, but I, like if I have like all day to write and then one meeting comes up on my calendar at like 11.15, like I'm not, it's not like, oh, I've got, now I've got seven and a half hours to write at least. It's like, I'm like 50% less productive for the entire day because I know that that one stupid meeting is there. And that like children are the same way. Like they, ha if they know they're going to be kind of interrupted, um, they don't, they don't get into things. They don't have the opportunity to develop that kind of focus. So 
having long interrupted periods where they're free to choose. Um, basically, is it possible for them to engage in the focus structurally in, in the school? And then getting them into that state, the teacher's job then becomes, um, how do I inspire that state of focus? Teachers, there's a bunch of Montessori quotes, and there's, a, I think, a kind of misunderstanding of Montessori that the teacher, you know, the teacher is passive. The teacher just kind of lets, lets students make choices, and then everything works it out if you set the environment up right. That is not true, and I don't think that Montessori believed that. The teacher is very active in, in enticing children into this state, um, and like voluntarily going into the state using very valuable materials, not just working on anything that they want. So there's a whole art to um, inducing this state, protecting it when it happens, valorizing it in the classroom, creating a culture of work, making sure that this is the thing that everybody sees as magical and special and worthwhile. Um, so that's a, what did you ask for, like a one-sentence summary? <laughs> yeah, I asked for the why. I also, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole with this because you've talked about this extensively elsewhere. So if people are deeply curious, there's a lot out there that they can already find. But for the sake of the conversation that we're about to have, for the uninitiated, how would you sum up very briefly like what Montessori is compared to standard traditional education? I guess standard and traditional are kind of two different things because traditional kind of bleeds towards classical, standard institutional public school as we know it now. Like I think people kind of have a vague idea of Montessori and you've just kind of described the sort of picture of it, but how do you sum up like the pedagogy? Well, maybe we can, maybe I can first answer by talking about the kind of landscape and then yeah. come back to Montessori because I, I think, I think I have a way of thinking about it that makes it clear. So um, if you zoom out and look at education today, zoom out like not that far, not, I mean, we could zoom out to like the kind of 2000 year span, but if you zoom out to the kind of um, 20 year span or 10 year span, um, there is right now, as there often is in the US, um, as there kind of cyclically is in the US, a, a, a disillusionment with the educational establishment. And that's largely the kind of traditional public school establishment, but it's not just the public school establishment, it also includes private schools and um, it's, it's a certain way of doing things um, um, that is has developed over the last century where there are classes and there's a schedule. Sometimes people call this the factory model. I don't really like the term factory model. I don't think it's historically accurate for the US. That there was Why? This, this, this model was not, this model was not developed to get people into factories or to make people good factory workers. It's just, it, it's just that that's a kind of British conception of the fears of the Industrial Revolution. That I mean, our model was adopted from Prussia and heavily, heavily modified, like even by people that I'm not a fan of, like Horace Mann, like that they were critics of the um, of many aspects of the Prussian education system. It, it was developed. It was developed for different reasons. We can get into that, but we'll come back um, to that. But it's it, yeah, it's the it's the traditional the traditional model. Um, it's very teacher-led, but more than being teacher-led, it's like pretty bureaucratic um, at this point. So it's it's it, the idea is, I mean, part of the question is what is the idea of, of the public education system? It's 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 three or four different. It's supposed to be three or four different things, um, like creating good citizens and creating vocational skills and helping social emotional learning, and they all get kind of mashed together. Um, it's a mixture of traditional and progressive ideas that's been bureaucratized and standardized, and. Um, you know, made public, like even private schools are beholden to public school standards in a lot of ways. And, and that's, that's the center of how we think about it. Um, and it, it, it doesn't work. I mean, COVID, the internet, a bunch of tailwinds have made people think, um, this doesn't work. This doesn't work for my child. This isn't as good as it could be. Um, and 
this happens every like 20 to 40 years in the US. Like it happened in the 60s right after racial integration. It happened in the 20s after the progressive educators kind of had their way with the with the um with the educational system. So um we're kind of in in one of these moments of deep public disaffection with the traditional system. So what has emerged? Um what are the alternatives? Um what if you if you don't want this? And there's roughly, I think there's roughly two camps. You can think of them as the traditionalists or neo-traditionalists or something like that. Not, not traditional as in we want to go back to public school like the way it's running now, but looking back to a tradition, um, classicist, neoclassicist. And then there's progressive educators, people who are like, we can do things totally differently. Like we can uproot the system. We can build something better. Um, and so progressive educators, Montessori is often count as a progressive educator, which I, I don't think is accurate, which I'll, I'll also come back to. We're, we're incurring a bunch of debt for things <laughs> to come back to. But um, progressive educator, unschooling is, an, is a paradigmatic example of progressive education. It's like there's something wrong with the very idea of school, of sticking students into a setting that's basically authoritarian. Um, children should be left free to explore their interests, free to learn. Children are natural learners. Um, there's this long tradition, developmental tradition that like children are naturally curious. It goes back to Rousseau, um, probably even longer. Um, children are naturally curious and all these institutions and all these structures just get in the way. They end up actually abrogating that curiosity. And the best thing to do is to be, keep children safe, but to be relatively hands off and give children as much autonomy as you possibly can. And then there are a bunch of variations on this idea that bring in more structure. Um, so um, going back to John Dewey in the early 20th century, the idea is, I mean, his schools were not unstructured, but they were structured in a very different way around kind of play-like, project-like activities that walk students through history, where students were doing lots of self-motivated discovery learning that the teacher was not telling the children what to repeat and what to write down. It was like you, you kind of get led through a discovery learning process. Um, so a lot of progressive schools are like that. There's also more expression-based ones that are like somewhere in between, kind of like the Waldorf and the Reggio schools where like creativity is valorized and um, the project-based learning approach, which was um, really crystallized by Kilpatrick in the 20s and 30s, um, is very, very influential in progressive circles. Can students learn what they need to learn by doing real projects? And can we kind of structure learning in that way? And then children do things and they naturally discover the math and the writing and the things that they need to know as, as kind of motivated by projects that they're interested in. So all that falls under progressive education. Like, do you want something that's like child-centered where your child's going to be happy and doing real things and entrepreneurial and creative and so on and so forth? Another set, another family of alternative approaches is the traditionalist, which is no, like children, school is good. And there's certain things that you, you, in order to learn them, you need certain, certain things you learn naturally. Like you learn every child learns how to speak at, you know, his mother's knee or her mother's knee. Um, you just kind of absorb that. You don't need to teach a child grammar of their native tongue. I mean, later you do, but like children will speak grammatically. Um, Two-year-olds will speak grammatically with no kind of proper instruction. But most learning or, or much of learning is not like that, um, including a really important things like literacy and math and civics and history. And so you need a kind of structured approach to these things. And the, the simplest version of the traditionalist is there's a thing, just have quality instruction. The problem with public schools is just that the instruction actually sucks. Um, it's It's been corrupted by progressive educators who want to do like projects and social studies instead of like teaching you the timeline of freaking history and like going through it. Um, and so just have quality direct instruction for the core subjects that's pretty structured where you're telling the students what to do and, and but like evidence-based and that works. So this is the direct instruction approach. 
Then there's um, more kind of even more throwback, kind of th you throw back further and further the further you go into this world. So there's classical education in the sense of Mortimer Adler, great books education, like what education looked like for a long time was, um, yes, like you learn literacy through drills, but like once you get to the substance of education, you're reading the great authors, you're reading the great books, you're kind of um, inducted into the legacy of the Western canon, something like that. And you can debate what should be in that canon, but that that process is very centered around a humanistic education, um, reading reading the classics. So that's one form of classicism. And then another form of classicism is like that plus like a kind of skepticism about modernity and uh, uh, um, it's more value infused with um, traditional values, which are often religious values or even specifically Christian values, especially in the U.S. And a lot of people who are very attracted to I don't know, Hillsdale College or doing homeschooling with like a classical curriculum. Like it's not so much like I want to get through the great books that animates them like Mortimer Adler. Like I want my child to go to like the University of Chicago and be able to like kill the humanities common core. Um, it's it's more like these these values are something that somehow in this canon, these values that are being embodied are something beautiful and C.S. Lewis-like and we want our child to kind of grow up believing certain things. Um, and there's other options there too. I, I think there's a kind of third, there's a huge class of people that's looking for a third way. That's like, you could call these the yin yang approaches, which is like, you know, I mean, I don't, have you had Michael Strong on this podcast yet? Yeah. A couple weeks ago. I mean, he's like the, this. one of the best people, one of the very best people doing this. So he's like, more and more Adler, great books plus entrepreneurship, the yin and the yang. So like you, you take the kind of best elements of the progressive schools, which is children should be doing real things. Yeah, children should be doing real things. But you have this academics that's like deeply connected to a classics great books tradition. And it's like 50-50. And, and, you, and you figure out a way to marry those two things. Um, schools that are like project-based learning plus IB, like international baccalaureate. Like it's a structured curriculum that has international renown that's better than the common core standard and, you know, yeah, like you don't want students to hate school. You want them to pursue their interests and develop some interests. So you do some PBL and mix them. That's another kind of common option. The book In Search for Deeper Learning, which is a good book on high school, alternative high schools, advocates for something like this. So um, I think that Montessori is a, it's, it's, it's a third way approach to kind of pull back to your original question. It's a third way approach, but it's really something new. It's not yin-yang in the sense of we're going to take the best elements from column A and the best elements from column B and merge them. It's um, or combine them. It's we're going to figure out a way to have children doing structured academics in a way that's wholly child-centered and voluntary. We're going to have them. We're going to figure out a way to motivate repetitive, deliberate practice on core skills. The kinds of things that it seems like if you just leave children on their own, they're going to play video games all day. It's like no, we can figure out a way. We can figure out a structure for education such that if we leave them on their own, they will practice spelling all day. Um, they will, you know, they will develop in themselves the capacity to study for the bar without the threat of like, like bad grades. Like it, it's a kind of more um, internally age, more motivated, agential approach to some of these academic questions. And there's a whole methodology that you need to do that. It's it's not just you know you study the classics, but you give some freedom. It's 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 not kind of a little from column A and a little from column B. It's it's a new approach. So. I think of Montessori as unique. This is why I'm drawn to Montessori. Ultimately, it's 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 uniquely new in terms of the alternatives that are available, and I think it uniquely works. It's hard to do well and to do it right, but when you do it right, it does. It, it works. It freaking works. One of the things you and I have talked about a bit before that I think is a really interesting 
thing to consider that I think a lot of people in ed- the education space don't spend a lot of time talking about, but you make some some interesting points around, is the idea that we haven't actually seen that much innovation in education historically. Like we're still sort of in the infancy of the field of yeah. education. Um, and so when you talk about Montessori being very innovative, um, it kind of is a more of a deviation from historically what education has looked like than most things that have that we've seen throughout, you know, you, you talk about like the last 20 years, I'll talk about the last hundred years since the, yep. you know, inception of public school being a, a national phenomenon in America, nationally standardized phenomenon. Um, but even then it's, while it is very innovative, it's also, there are a lot of things that are same to what education has looked like historically, like the things that kids are supposed to learn and sort of the progression of how they're learning them. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you see Montessori fitting into the broader spectrum of innovation in education and also why you make the argument that you think we're still in the infancy of of what education can look like. Yeah, so we've had about 120 years of innovation in education. Um, I mean, innovation in education really started in the very late 19th century, early 20th century. And um, people were right. Like, if you look at the literature, like Locke, Locke's treatise concerning questions in education and um, Rousseau's Emile. And um, I mean, you get, um, I mean, there's a whole tradition of people kind of thinking radically about education, but it doesn't really have that much impact on practice. Um, in practice, for about 2,600 years, 2,500 years, going back to um, pre-classical, the kind of pre-golden age, um, the classical age in Greece, um, education was, and I'm talking here about primary education, so like K-8, like the, this, is the, this is the kind of historical universal thing is K-8, mm-hmm. um, like six-year-olds to 14-year-olds. Um, it was, um, school was invented so that people would learn their letters you don't learn letters unless you really try, especially if you're in ancient Greece and you're not surrounded by perfect, beautiful typography with crazy inventions like spaces and punctuation that we have now. Like, they didn't have any of that. It was just a string of capital letters, often in a foreign tongue, because, you know, Alexander the Great conquered your land and now you have to learn Greek as a second language and become literate. And so you go to school as a seven-year-old and you drill on these Greek letters over and over for years, um, copying what the teacher tells you to copy until you can maybe eke out some words and then maybe eke out some sentences and the most advanced students get up to rhetoric and then if you get up to rhetoric and grammar, then you're reading the Iliad and the Odyssey and you're inducted into this classical tradition. Eventually this morphs into the quadrivium and you know the trivium supposedly you're also studying mathematics, but nobody really studies mathematics for most of human history until the scientific revolution. And then even then it's pretty limited. It's very humanistic. It's very focused on letters and it's very drill and kill. It's extremely drill and kill until you get very advanced. Certainly in K-8 it's drill and kill. And then higher, maybe you can start making your own arguments a little bit based on what you've learned. Um, and um, this is just like, if you want people to be literate, how do you do it? It's not that easy to figure out how to teach people to read and write. And we know certain things about human learning and behavior and, and the, the approach that was developed was a natural one. And people, the more knowledge advanced, the more people started getting disaffected by this system that seemed very authoritarian and very contrary in many ways to enlightenment values that were becoming prominent. And there was an industrial revolution and a political revolution. And like, why wouldn't there be an educational revolution? And there wasn't, even though some people wanted it, there wasn't an educational revolution in practice until 
the late 19th, early 20th centuries. And so it came too late, <laughs> um, the revolution in education. I mean, it should have happened in the 1600s, 1700s, and it happened in the 1900s. And because it happened in the 1900s, you kind of get this counter-enlightenment progressive um, streak in, the, in a lot of the reformers, um, in a lot of the education reformers. And um, the situation that we have now today, I mean, public schools are a result of progressive educators. Um, I mean, it seems very traditional, like now progressive educators are very tr critical, of the, but it's like, how do you actually set up a school that, that's progressive and that scales and that works? Like nobody could scale the Dewey Lab school. Um, it was a good school by all accounts, but it was it was very unique. It was like you had like, you know, a bunch of unicorn teachers being coached by freaking John Dewey and then John Dewey leaves and the whole thing collapses. Like, how do you actually make this into a system? How do you get, get people to read and write, get people what they need? You end up falling back on the traditional system, but you modify it a little bit. So maybe instead of having people memorize a bunch of things in history, we'll do social studies. And social studies is like broad, thematic, exciting, more amenable to projects on migration and what students are interested in. And so what we in fact have in public schools today is like, it's like the worst of both worlds. It's like a curricular structure influenced by progressive educators that, that instead of literature, you get English, which is this interesting subject. And instead of history, you get social studies. Um, science education in K-8 is actually just relatively new. So a lot of the ideas about science education are also progressive influence. Um, and, um, and every so often, there's a kind of discovery-based influence on literature or on uh, literacy and the math curriculum, and then there's a kind of fight about it. There's a fight about it right now. If you, if you kind of follow education news, you'll know that um, the math wars of the 90s are kind of spiking again. Like, should students learn math in a discovery-based way where they actually understand the math? Or should they actually learn the math where they actually learn their numbers and math facts and tables? And Or is that a false dichotomy, as I think? Um, um, but, I mean, you have all these kind of new early 20th century progressive ideas burbling around in education. And that's part of what gets run through a bureaucracy, a kind of bureaucratic function. And so what gets scaled up to the public education, it's not the one-room schoolhouse of the 18th century where you're like getting the quadrivium and the quadrivium. It's something, some sort of hybrid of that with a progressive a curriculum in, a, in an incredibly, you know, um, administrative structure, um, one that's one that's really optimized for a kind of state administration function where um, there's accountability practices and, you know, districts funneling down to schools, funneling down to classrooms, and um, there's all this overhead and people are worried about standards all the time and they're funneling students and making sure that boxes are checked because nobody wants to waste taxpayer dollars. And it's just, it's really the question of like, is the education actually good is like a third class question, you know. Um, for, for most most people working in that system. Fine, what you mean by progressive, you kind of defined it in the beginning when you're talking about like progressive versus traditional. But I think like the word progressive is so often tied up in politics when people talk about this or, or talk about like the use the term progressive. I think it's helpful to just like define what you mean by progressive educators because you don't mean politically progressive. You mean and in terms of education philosophy, they're progressive. Yeah, but but the way that I'm when I talk about history, I use it in two different ways, which is probably mm -hmm. confusing, and I'm not even sure they're totally consistent with one another. So, um, the way that I was using it earlier when you first asked me the question is: progressive educators are people who are high autonomy and low structure. That's basically how I was using it. Like they they're like student motivation, yay; student happiness, yay; student projects, student interests, yay; student choice, yay; like f making children do things, um, memorizing facts, you know, 
going through the traditional knowledge structures, like, no, like those crush autonomy. Like they, they see it, they see this as a trade-off and they take one half of that trade-off. Um, I think that that's a useful way to think about how the trade-offs play out in the education space. When I talk about history, I'm talking about the progressives, the like early 20th century U.S. progressives, which was a kind of disparate political movement um, that had a lot of different parts and a lot of disagreement within it. And so there's a way that people think of the arch in history, the arch progressive educator is John Dewey, even though he doesn't really fit into any of the camps of progressive education that cleanly and nobody really knew what he was talking about at the time. And so he just got interpreted every which way. Um, but there were developmentalists, progressives, people who thought that the way to kind of advance education. So the thing that all the progressives have in common, the historical progressives, is um, they think of education as a tool to make society better. Like to change society for the better. That education needs to be reformed. We can do better in education. We can change things. We can shake up the old system. We don't have to be, we don't have to teach classical education in one-room schoolhouses. We can do better than that. Um, we can we can have scientific industrial innovation in education. When I say industrial, probably people are going to think industrial model, but I just mean like in the same way that we have technological progress, we can have progress in education. Um, so that, and that, that was connected to a political ethos that was largely left-leaning um, because this is just the way that things play out in U.S. In US politics. Um, and um, there were developmentalist people that thought that we can just follow the child and developmental psychology will show us the way there were um, like more like egalitarians, like like this is how we're, we're getting waves of immigration. This is how we're going to lift up the masses is, is through education. There was um, there were all sorts of there were four or five different competing in, instincts in, in progressive education. So but the common denominator was like we can do things differently. And one of the main influential threads was um, this kind of project based discovery learning thread. Um, whether that's you should kind of recapitulate history in an interesting way to children or you should learn through projects like Kilpatrick argued that you should learn like that could be done at both at home and at school um, that gets integrated into the public school curriculum in all sorts of ways that aren't exactly like the original people who came up with those ideas intended but you know this is how it played out and then I interrupted you before you started talking about how Montessori fits into this arc of this narrative arc of the story of education, but I think that's worth touching on too before we keep going. <laughs> so yeah, so historically Montessori does creates her first school in 1907, gets international acclaim by 1910. I mean the thing that she becomes the most famous for is she's working with young children, which is unusual for an education innovator. Like most people are working in that K eight range, um, she's working with high school like hadn't been invented yet at this time. <laughs> Um, so she she's working with um, very young children, children under the age of six, um, and she teaches them how to read. Three-year-olds, four-year-olds, how to read in Italian, and these are slum children, like children who like we don't we never had slums in America like they had in Rome. So like whatever your image of like traumatized, underprivileged students is, um, it's like that times ten. These were these were the children that she was working with, um, and they learned how to read and write. And they did it in this very freedom-conducive environment, in this very kind of monastery environment where they got to make a bunch of choices and they got to determine their days. And no, like wealthy aristocrats weren't teaching their children how to read at three at this time. Like nobody, it was just like not on anyone's radar that you should 
if anything, that it was moving in the direction, like Rousseau and Emile argues that you should wait until the child is like 10 or 12 to teach them how to read because then they understand the purpose. And progressive educators in the U.S. were kind of veering in that direction. Like, why force young children to do all these phonics drills? Like, just wait until they're older. It'll be better. Um, and Montessori was saying, no, you should teach three-year-olds how to read. And so she became very famous very, very quickly for this. Within a few years, um, she had international renown. In the U.S., she was popularly acclaimed, I won't get into all the mechanisms by which this happened, but she she had like, a, there was a column devoted to her in a very popular magazine. Think like, think like, um, this is too political, but something like Fox News loves Montessori. Like that was something like that at the time where like the people love Montessori. There was a lot of excitement about it. Um, um, and the educational establishment never liked her. Um, so Dewey was kind of mixed on her. Um, I think he had his criticisms and then warmed up to her over time. But Dewey's students were very influential and very loud, um, adjudicated conferences and published books and were very, very critical of Montessori. And I think that the, the reason is that they, they didn't, I mean, they didn't like her education system. Um, so they, they looked at what she was doing and they thought it's too structured. Um, it's, um, pushes too much on the child too early. Um, a lot of the things that Montessori is doing with sensorial education and choice don't actually make sense, or there's better ways to do those things. There's ways that you can give the child more radical freedom. Um, it's too academic and old school. Like we think that you should learn things through projects, whereas Montessori, like if you kind of, if your idea of like, how should you learn math is give children carpentry projects and then they will be motivated to learn about geometry and right angles and measurement and counting and numbers. And Montessori's idea for how to teach children how to learn math is you give them math materials where they learn how to like count and they learn very directly the concept of triangles and measuring angles. So it's much more academic and classical in that sense. So there, there are all these differences between Montessori and the progressive approach. And I think that th these are not incidental differences. They're real differences. Like, like if you're an unschooling person, probably you don't like Montessori for the same reason that Kilpatrick didn't like Montessori. Um, and... Um, she was kind of argued out of America. I mean, it was just, it was a time when the, the, the hot thing was education, like in a way that is just impossible to understand now. It was like, what do people love now? It's like AI and like gender controversy and um, I don't know, um, what's something else that people love to argue about? Gun rights. Like imagine all those things were like rolled into one. Like that was education in the early 20th century. It was like the topic that everybody was excited about and on about. And the the whole emerging establishment, which was very young itself, but the whole emerging establishment kind of like ejected Montessori by kind of force of academic disputation. And um, she went back to Europe and then World War I happens and she didn't really arrive back in the U.S. until the 1960s. So there were no Montessori schools in the U.S. in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, most of the 1960s. Um, because of these ideological disagreements, eventually she gets brought back as a kind of grassroots movement, which is its own kind of story. But um, yeah, it's been it had Montessori had to kind of rebuild its itself in the U.S. over the last fifty years. Why this is very tangential, but I think this is an interesting rabbit hole to fall down briefly. Why was education such a hot topic around the turn of the century? Because it was it was like. Um, my kind of most pithy answer to this um so, so a few things so so i mean it was it was it was the, the shortest answer is it was, it was way past time to rethink education way past time 
and it, it was like inexcusable that it, like the the one room schoolhouse system didn't work. It didn't make sense that Harvard graduates were like like in the eighteen seventies, Harvard, the most prestigious university in America, even then. Do you know what their educational innovation was? Electives. They let students choose some of the classes that they got to take. And other than that, it was like a highly regimented classical education. So this is straight up through higher ed. And not every university in the U.S. worked like this. Like, I think University of Virginia, which is also a very old university, was a little bit different. But, I mean, the, the American system was like very classicist and broken um, in a way that like there, there wasn't enough science. Um, the literacy and humanistic structures didn't work for most students. It was like too rote and rigid. Like nobody had kind of thought to update it or make it a little bit more dynamic. Um, um, science... Uh, um, the math education that people were getting was pretty subpar. And and you see this, like, like I mean, Abe Lincoln was educated on the frontier in, what, Kentucky? And, like, he's just like, yeah, like, I had one-room schoolhouses. They sucked. Like, the teachers came in. Like, they taught us classical stuff. Most of them didn't even know classical stuff. And then they would move on to somewhere else at the frontier. And, and if you're, like, a boy who's, like, modestly intellectually ambitious, there's just nothing for you in the system. And that's what a lot of the country was experiencing, whether that was, like, Chicago, which was like tripling in size every 10 years due to immigration, or the frontier, which is just kind of in flux because it was the frontier. So the system wasn't working. It was too old. It was too crusty. It wasn't wasn't easily adaptable. McClure's readers, the kind of curriculum that people had, wasn't working. And then the social sciences, just across the board, sociology, psychology, including developmental psychology, um, psychoanalysis, um, kind of new approaches to history, new approaches to political economy, economics, like the whole social sciences kind of exploded into being in the 19th century. I mean, they became sciences in their own right. They became quantified. They became more respectable. Um, even where they weren't quantified, people were interested in them in a kind of new way. I mean, just like imagine living in a world where before Freud, like, I mean, everything that Freud said was wrong, but there was just no widely accepted terminology for the idea of like a mental pathology or the unconscious or something like that. So all these sciences were bursting into being. A lot of them were influenced by ideas in biology, exciting ideas in biology um, from Darwin, from evolutionary biology. Um, but also just like biology was getting better and better at describing different systems. And so it kind of finally felt like this, this education sucks. We're starting to develop the scientific resources to talk about human beings, including growing human beings and things like learning and memory. Like now is the time to really rethink this and, and get this get this going from first principles. Um, and it just it just became the the kind of political and policy inflection point for a lot of intellectuals. It was like the natural place to apply all of these new ideas. So innovation and education is still a very new thing. Where do you yep. see the most high leverage or high impact areas to be innovating within moving forward? Like what are the biggest opportunities on the table? Um, I mean, there are so many. Um, I, I'm going to pluck a couple at random. Um, so one is um, I think a major opportunity is to take a framework like Montessori. This is basically what we're doing. And this gets to a question you asked me a million years ago. Um, take a framework like Montessori, which is, I think, like, profound in its principles and, like, just, like, cuts to the center and get, gets at new things and, and shows us a new way forward and keep taking it forward, keep updating it. Um, and unfortunately, this hasn't been done that much um, by, by great Montessori educators. And so Montessori education is kind of in stasis. Montessori died in 1952 or something like that. And... Uh, 
I mean, when I first came into Montessori, I was reviewing somebody's elementary album that they made, their elementary curriculum that they learned in Bergamo from people who were like one generation away from, removed from Rio Montessori, and they were learning the, the real deal, the rigorous Montessorian stuff. And it had like the wrong explanation in it for how mountains form. Um, I mean, now we know that mountains form through plate tectonics, like plates kind of push other plates up, and that's how most mountains form. There's also volcanic processes, but like we didn't, that wasn't widely accepted until the 1950s. Oh, Maria Montessori didn't live that long, so that's not, so there's just, there's kind of like basic curricular updating, but there's, even in early childhood, there's stuff like practical life is really big in Montessori, like, like teach kids how to like, you could teach them how to sew, that's great, but like teach them how to like replace batteries, like, I, just there's a million things like that that should be like, I mean, the things that I have on my wall at home are basically things that I think should be in the Montessori curriculum or classroom. Like, children should learn how to use tools from a very young age, and um, this should be integrated into what they do. So, just kind of keep it going forward. Um, keep, like, really update the curriculum. Take it, take the curriculum into middle school and high school, which is um, something that nobody's really done in a systematic way. So, um, but still kind of keeping with Montessori principles. So that's one thing is just take a, take a good framework. I think Montessori is the best framework and like develop it, expand it. Like the hard part's been done. Like like somebody, like she cured cancer and now you just have to figure out like how it applies to all these different areas. Like, you know, mm. like that's how I think about Montessori. It's like you've got the fire of the gods. So how do you expand that? How do you make that fire burn brighter and hotter and in more places? Um, um, but there's other things too. There's like very particular things. So I'll just name a couple. So one is... Um, the internet is amazing. Um, it's amazing for learners. Um, but it also kind of sucks. So, so it, like, it's the promise of it is amazing. The, the kind of the best use cases and the promise of the internet is like the best content on every single subject at your fingertips for every age at any time. Um, all the knowledge, not just all the knowledge available to human beings, but all the kind of like pedagogical expertise available to human beings kind of condensed down. Um, in practice, it's not that easy to find great educational content. Like if you just kind of start to search for things on YouTube, like most of what you come up with at first is going to suck. It takes a lot of work to curate that down to something truly good. Um, and then even insofar as it is truly good, um, most people don't know about it. Um, it's hard to convince people and educate people that like that this is, this is the best way. Um, second, um, children can't use it. So teenagers can use it, and 10-year-olds can use it. Can 8-year-olds use it? It's not that easy for 8-year-olds to use the internet, especially if you're, like, if, if you're like really having them use it independently to learn. Like if they just kind of search for random things, like what are they going to come up with? Are they going to be able to adjudicate what's a good source and what's a bad source? What about 6-year-olds? Six 6-year-olds six can read, they can write, they can type. Can they use the internet? Eh, like it's not that easy. So there's this whole kind of making the internet more pedagogically pure and accessible, like kind of what's what's there. And then there's making children better able to use the internet independently. And there are some people working on the former problem, kind of making the, making bringing the best of the best of the internet to children. Very few people, I know a tiny number of people, are working on the problem of like how do you on-ramp like four to eight-year-olds onto the internet? And nobody wants to touch that problem. It's a very hard problem. It's fraught with all sorts of cultural risk and legal risk. And I mean, you know, the first person to like release a product on this is going to have to worry about whitelisting and filtration and all sorts of things like this. So, um, so that's, but I think it's a crucial one. Like, I mean, so, imagine how good it would be to solve that problem. And you can like give a four-year-old an iPad and like a huge amount of what they can learn. It's quality learning. It's not crap. It's not like the random 
you know, Cocoa Melon stuff that they find on YouTube. It's like really like, oh my God, it's like five-year-old is like knows more about Russian history than I do all of a sudden. Like that's the future. It just hasn't happened yet. Um, AI related to that, I think has a lot of promise. High school students are using AI now extensively for tutoring, like as a tutor, um, without very many products being released to help them. And it's good. Like good high school students can use it as a good tutor. Like, oh, I took PC calculus last year. Uh, AB calculus last year and now I'm taking PC and I can't remember. Can you just give me like a study guide and problem sets and like walk me through it and check my work? And you can just use AI to do that. It's it's amazing. Um, but um, middle school students, it's not as easy. It's like tricky to use. So all these things need to be kind of brought, brought to the masses and kind of made more accessible and user-friendly. Um, that's a huge class of things. So maybe I could just pause there. So one is taking educational principles forward and the other is like, making technology, but the actual promise of ed tech, which I, I think has just flopped largely. Yeah. Why do you think it's flopped? Expand on that. I mean, it's just, I, I mean, just, so there's the reasons, but one is just, I think it like just observably it has flopped. So what are the great ed tech companies out there? Name 10. Duolingo. I mean, if you kind of work in traditional education, you'll know things like IX, IXL and LMSs like Canvas and things like that. Um, um, they're okay. I mean, some of these companies are perfectly good. Um, like, I don't want to knock Duolingo or IXL. But, like, the idea that the internet and technology have revolutionized learning and made it more personalized and individualized and put everything, like, it, I mean, the best educational technology out there is, like, YouTube and Wikipedia. Like, it's not yeah. ed tech. It's just tech. It's just it's just learning tech or content tech. And and those things are great, but they're not optimized for education. Yeah, the internet's definitely, it's it's revolutionized the potential of what can be built, the possibilities at our fingertips. And it's definitely, like, if you know how to use the internet well, it's changed everything about learning. Like, I am very much a product of the internet age. Like, my high school experience was almost exclusively on the internet in a very self-directed manner. And it was a combination of like using the using the library, but ordering things that I'd found through the internet to find, uh, to get access to like recorded courses from the teaching company or something, and then supplementing with tons of stuff on YouTube and depositories of, of classic books like Project Gutenberg to read the classics when I was in high school and finding like science videos and, and cadaver dissections, like weird things down different rabbit holes of YouTube and finding like there, there's, they're, you know, going through Wikipedia and then finding sources and, and using the internet to, to unlock other rabbit holes with the things I was interested in. Like there's like, that was my high school experience and it was awesome and it was possible it, that, because that of the internet. Awesome. Yeah. It was no, that so awesome, great. But, but, but a, you were in high school. Yes. And I think that and I think that the the kind of biggest problems to solve in education are still in K8 kind of early childhood through 8th grade. I think I think of primary education as the kind of most important and hardest part. If you have like a well-educated motivated learner who's like 15, 16, 17, like there's a way that kind of like I mean I, I still think that education has a role but like you're done. Like you're done with your basics and now you're kind of making choices and hopefully mm -hmm. you've learned how to learn and like like you can seek out coaches and help when you need it but like I don't think that, I think that what education means when you're 18 is very different than what education means when you're eight. And if you're eight and you're, you're like, mom is fed up with your crappy public school experience and has pulled you out to homeschool, like, and she's like trying to figure out what to teach you, like, chances are you're going to like Google curriculum to use 
and you're going to have to kind of make an assessment about those curricula. You're not just going to kind of pull, pull together YouTube videos because um, that's really hard and like you're not totally sure if the child is learning things in a systematic way if they should be. And it's just, it's not there yet for the eight-year-old. I want to talk about homeschooling for a little bit actually because a lot of people who listen to this podcast are either homeschooling actively or they're homeschooling curious. Um, what... How how would you advise the parent who is beginning their homeschool journey or already in it? Because I think there's a, like, I think parents both underestimate their own capacity to deliver a phenomenal education to their kids and yet at the same time um, don't necessarily know where to look to find the resources, the frameworks, the the information that they need to construct a good educational framework for their kids. Like it is both easier and harder, I think, than parents necessarily think it is when they're getting started. Uh, what do you think is important for a parent to do in order for them to be able to like feel like they are adequately structuring a framework for their kids where they can like trust their own ability to deliver resources, but they they can trust that their kid is getting the developmentally appropriate things that they need to be learning at a second grade, third grade, fifth grade level, wherever their kid's at. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the way that I would put that, the kind of paradox that you were like, in some ways it's easier, in some ways it's harder than you think is, um, and this is my first advice to any homeschooling family is that it is possible, it is possible for almost any parent to do better than what most schools around them have to offer for their child. Teachers unions on Twitter everywhere are <laughs> horrified by that comment and are angrily retweeting right now with their pushback to that. <laughs> so this, maybe this will be, this, this will ameliorate some of their criticisms. Um, but it's, it's work. It's work. You've got to learn how to be a teacher and it's, it's not easy. Um, even if you've just got one child, even if it's your child who you know really well, it's not easy. And so it's possible, but it's work. And it's 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 work that's doable. Like it's not like oh it's work. It's you're gonna stress. You're gonna suffer. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like your expectation should be like this is a real project. Um, like if you're a parent thinking about homeschooling, think back to your first child when they were born, and like you had to learn everything, and you were looking up like sleep training and is it good or bad, and vaccination schedules and diapering and trying to figure out like ha like you know breast milk versus formula and like your child starts to make a mess and you're trying to figure out how to talk to your child about it and like all of that like that whole kind of like everything is new and I've got to figure everything out myself and I've got to take it really seriously that's it's like that except now they're like six or five or eight or however old they are um I think um so it's it's doable but it's work and you know there's a reason why teachers are like what you think you can do my job like I have expertise teachers do have some expertise um that you don't necessarily naturally have as a parent um, so just going with that mindset, um, I would say, I mean, there's a, I mean, I talk to homeschooling parents a lot. Um, there, I would encourage you to be open-minded and ambitious about what the homeschooling experience looks like. I think the, um, here, here's the natural dynamic. You think, I'm going to create this awesome personalized experience that my child, my son or daughter is going to love. And then like six months into it, they're like, oh, they don't like it when I make them do math any more than they liked it 
when their elementary school teacher made them do math. And you kind of, you, you find yourself in power struggles with your child about what to do, what, when, and you're negotiating everything and it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. Um, that is, you are confronting the problem of education, which is not, which is a real problem. Like it's a, it's a real problem, like in the nature of learning and, and instruction. And it's not something that is just an artifact of the public school system or something like that. Um, and you can solve it. You can solve it, but you, you do need to think a little bit progressively in the sense of, not in the sense of you have to do exactly what the progressive educators did or you have to be unstructured, but um, you have to think that something new and better and different is possible. Um, something more individualized, something where your child has more choice, something where the structures look very different from how they looked. I wouldn't, I mean, I'm going to plug my own company here. We have a homeschooling curriculum, um, Guidepost at Home. So our schools are called Guidepost schools and we have a Guidepost at Home curriculum um, that's for parents to be educators in their own home. Um, the elementary curriculum is great. You can use it. We will ship Montessori materials, elementary Montessori materials to your house um, and then you ship them back when you're done. There's like a library that you can use. Um, we help you, we coach you, we train you. Um, there's all sorts of things that you can do. Um, and um, if you're using other curriculum other than ours, um, even if you're using ours, just just have ongoing judgment about it. Like it's tricky to figure out. Even teachers struggle with this. Every It's not like there's mandated curriculum that every teacher uses. Teachers are largely free to pick out their own curriculum and they have to adjust based on what works. And I mean, the typical homes, I was talking to one mom on the playground the other day who was like, got five kids at home and she's doing Singapore curriculum, Singapore math for math. And I'm like, that's pretty good. Like, especially if you supplement it with some other things and she's doing, what, what is it called? Um, not truth, beauty, and goodness, goodness and beauty. There's there's a literature curriculum called goodness and beauty for, for literature and some of the other humanities. I'm like, yeah, that one's less good. But for what she wanted, maybe it's good. She, she was kind of into it for the Christian values. You got to judge, like, is this achieving the effects that, it, that I need it to? And are my children engaged by it? And if not, pivot. I think the point that you just made about taking a progressive mentality to this is important to re-emphasize because I think this is one of the places that people leave so much value on the table when they start homeschooling is they're just kind of they're the emphasis was on both home and also schooling. So they're taking what's happening in the schools and they're bringing it home. And they're like, we're, you know, I'm going to administer this. I'm going to have the hands on touch to be able to sort of customize the details of this to fit either the ideological values that my family has or the specific developmental or learning needs that my child has. So we can tweak the details to make it a better fit for our kids. And we're going to do it at home where they're, you know, they don't have to be in the school environment that for whatever reason isn't a good fit for them. Maybe they're getting bullied. Maybe they're not, it's not like a good cultural fit, but it's still trying to replicate school at home. And I've seen like there are some, there's a whole spectrum of, of how people homeschool starting with, you know, we're we're going to have this sort of like timers and bells structure that we have in school. We're just going to replicate that at home. It's like, okay, it's it's 9.15, so it's time to do English. And then at 10.25, we're going to do math. And it's like very regimented. And then, you know, the spectrum goes all the way to unschooling, which we can touch on in a, a minute because I know you have thoughts about that too. Um, but I think the progressive mentality is so important for parents to bring into this. It's like, no, you're starting with a blank slate and you can make this better than school. You don't have to replicate the broken system and just incrementally improve it by getting rid of the couple of details that you didn't like that were happening yeah. in public school. You can truly make this a different experience for your children, which is what my parents did. Yeah. I mean, I agree with all of that. And and I think um, this is not, it's not that clear in the debates about homeschool that 
what homeschooling is. Like homeschooling is a, a it's education at home, mm-hmm. and school schooling is education at school, and that's a pretty thin. Both of those things are pretty. What, what happens in school? What happens at home? Like it, those concepts are empty with respect to that. Like the Montessori school is very different than the Dalton Lab school is very different than you know. Like a classical Catholic school is very different than a traditional public school. It's very different. And homeschooling structures are also very different. Like homeschooling is it's 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 a place, it's not a methodology. Um and, and it and it's amenable to different methodologies. It's amenable to much more personalization and customization. It's amenable to more tutorial style education. But like even within that, like what like what curriculum are you using? Like how are you structuring your day? What what topics are you picking is important? Like, are you doing history? Are you doing social studies? Like those are different approaches to the same rough set of topics. Um, um, are you doing either of those? Are you doing neither? Are you letting your child kind of choose what they're interested in? Are you saying, like, I know some homeschooling parents who, who um, the approach that they took with their children is, um, every day you're going to do math. That's, this is the mandatory thing. This is the school thing. I'm going to make you do math um, for a certain amount of time a day. Um, and everything else is going to be customized and interest-based and kind of um, you know up, up to the child in a certain way. The, the, the rest was was very unstructured. I don't like that structure, but like that, I think you should think about what the possibilities are for kind of where you're putting, where you're exactly you're putting the pressure in the structure and how you're doing it. Um, the, I, I think the default is going to be, um, not maybe not for every family, but for a lot of families, the default is going to be you're doing a school curriculum at home in a school way with worksheets and a schedule and tests. And that's what you're doing. Yeah, which is leaves a lot of value on the table. But at the same time, the other end of the spectrum, unschooling, is also <laughs> people have very mixed mixed opinions about that. There are very staunch advocates of it. Uh, there are very staunch critics of it. I'd love to hear your take on unschooling, both the pros and the cons of it in your mind. So unschooling means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but if I'm just, I'm going to try to kind of give a steel man general overview of like what it is. So um, the idea is um, the whole concept of like a school essentially means some sort of institution with an authoritarian learning structure. Um. And what you learn in school, whether maybe you learn subjects, maybe you learn certain things, but what you actually learn in school is compliance and, um, you know, all the ways in which you awkwardly don't fit into systems that are going to steamroll over you. And, uh, I mean, you, you kind of you Very learn John what it Taylor is. To kind of, yeah. Like, so, so, um, and 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 so the pr- the problem is with the very idea of school. This is just what school means. This kind of goes to the essence of what school means historically. And it certainly goes to the essence of what school means today. And so the the right way to think about a children's learning is to unschool them. And if you've had a child in school, you might have to de-school them first. To kind of there's lessons that a child has internalized that they have to um, that they have to forget. Like and and there's a huge element of truth to this so i'm very critical of unschooling i, I don't like unschooling but um, I, I don't think this is the right way to think about school but is there is there a large element of truth in this yes like i used to be a college professor i had real i taught at very good universities and colleges and got very good students like the the best and the brightest and they came to my classes my philosophy classes where we're discussing the big ideas and the first thing the brightest students want to know is is this going to be on the test 
And that is um, that attitude, that mindset of like school is a checklist. It's a structure where other people reward me and punish me and I can get good at the system in the game. And this is basically what life is like. Um, you a lot of people do have to unlearn that. So, I mean, that and that kind of de-schooling in that sense, you know, makes a lot of sense. Um, I just, I don't think that, um, I don't think that it's good to identify institutional learning with authoritarian learning. Um, I think that there can be institutions, dedicated, professional, specialized institutions that are very good at instructional design, at task analysis, at working with and talking to children, at connecting with parents and, and families, at, at like teaching something like teaching a science curriculum from first grade through eighth grade, just to kind of stick on our core subject, is not easy to have, to know. Even if you know the science, it's not easy to know how to do that, to know how to kind of get children excited about it and to make it so that they walk away with the right lessons and they're really internalized. They didn't just, they weren't just like, oh, that's cool because I was interested in black holes when I was in second grade, but like you never really learn what they are or how they relate to the other solar system or any of the math involved. And later in life, like when, you know, you're called upon to have some sort of scientific expertise because you're grandma has cancer and you're trying to help her understand things like you're helpless um, or um, there's a debate about vaccines and you're helpless or everybody on Twitter is talking about superconductors and you don't know what the hell people are talking about because like your science education didn't actually add up to anything because it takes a lot of work to teach people science. It takes a certain kind of expertise. Again, it's, it's not magical. It's expertise that any parent can learn, but why not professionalize it? Why not specialize? Why not have teachers and coaches that are really good at educating? And in fact, there are people who are really good at educating. No matter how bad your education is, most people, not no matter how bad, but how <laughs> um, most people, despite having a negative experience with their education, um, even people who have a very negative experience with their education, have a, um, that one teacher that like, I didn't even like history and like I had written it off, but oh my God, I, like I memorized like everything about the French Revolution because, and I still remember today, like, you know, the different varietals of Bonapartism because they made it come alive for me. And like, that is, that is a, it, it, it's a real skill and art and there are superstar teachers and there's a skill of teaching. And I'm not saying that teachers colleges teach this. I'm not saying this is what you get in most public schools, but is it a real thing? Yes, it is. And to say school is bad because it's inherently authoritarian. It's, it's just, I, it's not true that it's inherently authoritarian. It's not true that education can't be professionalized and expertized. It's not true that having an institution um, centered around educating young people that has a really good culture that's full of experts and really good teachers is necessarily impossible. And I, I'm not saying that all unschoolers believe that it's impossible, but that it is a thread and it, it's a tendency. And I, I think, I don't think you should saddle your conception of education and school with kind of authoritarianism. I don't think you should see those two things as necessarily connected. I have a lot of thoughts on this and we could probably <laughs> spend an entire episode just talking about the nuance of this, but I have too many other questions that I want to ask you before we run out of time. Okay. So we're going to keep moving. Um, you talked earlier, I flagged this to come back to, um, you were talking earlier about inspiring motivation in children as part of the the way that Montessori learning environments are designed. How do you think about the relationship between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation in kids and what the right balance is between very strongly encouraging them to do something versus letting them go wherever they're naturally interested in going? Because a lot of Montessori is designed to make kids curious about things and then facilitate sure. the exploration of those curiosities once the curiosity, the flame has been lit. But what is? how do you think about the, the nuance between those two things? 
Yeah, I mean, there's some variation in children across different subjects. So, I mean, um, the Montessori, just to answer the last question first. So, like, in, in the Montessori three to six environment, three-year-olds to six years old, um, there are materials designed to entice children to want to learn how to read. And not only that, but there are games that the child has been playing since they were in infant and toddler programs and exercises they've been doing that have, that are kind of priming them in very indirectly to be interested in these in these kind of literacy materials. So there's a lot of things, kind of like the materials are attractive. Um, writing is kind of everywhere in the classroom and in strategic places to kind of tempt the child. Um, the child is already capable of distinguishing phonemes in, in oral language, so they, they're peaked to be interested in graphemes. But does every single child naturally get interested in it? Like if, if just left to their own devices, would they go over and choose the material and ask for a presentation? No. No. Um, some children don't naturally, they're, they're naturally gravitate towards other areas or they something doesn't click for them. Um, and at some point, the teacher reaches out to that child one-on-one -on -one and has a whole song and dance, careful presentation. Not like, not song and dance in the sense of, I'm going to overwhelm you, but like it's, it's the opposite. In fact, it's... Hannah, I want to show you something special today. Um, when when the bell rings, when I ring this bell, um, I'm going to pull you over. It's going to be at about 10 o'clock, so you can work for a little while, but I'm going to pull you over and I'm going to show you something really special. I mean, I can't wait to hang out with you today. It's like, oh my gosh, what's she going to show me? And then the teacher, the bell rings and you kind of look up and the teacher is walking towards you with this colorful kind of blue blue cards, probably the sandpaper letters are what you're going to start with, So, which is these thick wooden um, um, cards with um, the letters carved on them in sandpaper, and the teacher might bring over one or two. And the teacher has a whole story that they kind of show them that don't touch them yet. So you're going to put them in front of you, so look, but don't touch. And the child's like, oh my god, I want to touch this thing so bad. It's got sandpaper on it. Like, it looks very touchable. I've seen the other children using it. This is really exciting. This is my moment. Um, so there's this whole, and then the teacher gives this very, very specific, very scripted um, presentation um, where it's like this is part of what the Montessori training is. It's not just like, oh, you figure out how to connect this child to it. It's like, no, there's a script to, to connect the child to this thing. And if it doesn't work, like you put it aside and you try again, you try different things. So there's there's a concerted effort to sell the child on this. What, what doesn't happen is um, the child's not interested in this. So like at 10 o'clock, this child has to do this work. Every day from 10 to 10.30, like no matter what, the child has to work on the sandpaper letters because, you know what, you've got to learn how to read and write and that requires structured practice. And so we're just going to kind of force it on this child. And, you know, and I might, I'm willing to get into a power struggle over it because, you know, literacy is important. It's just not the, the approach is like, I know I can win over this child. Um, and, um, and so in a sense, it's the learning is uncompromisingly child-centered in the sense of the child has to assent to it. The child has to say, yes, I'm interested in this. Um, yes, I'm interested in this presentation. Yes, this presentation is interesting enough to me that I'm going to continue to work with this material independently. Um, yes, I trust the teacher enough to let them guide me through this process. Like everything is voluntary, um, but there is a very definite structure there that's there to make sure that nothing slips through the cracks and that it's, a child just doesn't isn't accidentally doesn't learn math or doesn't learn literacy or something like that. Um, um, Intrinsic versus extrinsic. I mean, what I just described, I think most people would probably think of as different shades of intrinsic. You know, either the child is naturally drawn to it or they're like given the option to be inspired and they, they, they can still say no, so they have to want to do it. And so it's still governed by their agency. It's still intrinsic. I don't like intrinsic versus extrinsic. Um, it, a lot of Montessorians use it. A lot of 
educators that I really like use it. Um, so the idea is in, with intrinsic motivation, you want to do something for the sake of the activity itself. It's, it's your pleasure enjoying the activity. You're not worried about the reward or the outcome or um, it's just like it's the doing itself and your choice to do the doing that you're in a flow state. Like you're like, what's his name? She sent me Hiley's flow state where it's just like the right level of challenge for you. And you just love the process so much. Aristotle, activity for the sake of act the activity itself. It's the highest end. Extrinsic motivation is like, you know, at one end, it's like somebody's paying you to do it. Like it's, it's, it's like, oh, I don't want to fill out this goddamn spreadsheet for work. But like, you know, I get $25 an hour and. Um, and I can use that money in exchange for goods and services and things that I like. And so I get a reward or in school, it's like I get a grade and I want the grade to be good. Or at the other end, like I get, if I don't do it, I'm going to be sent to detention or the teacher's going to yell at me or my, I'm going to get in trouble with my parents. So there's this whole, there's a system of accountability, gold stickers, grades, money, whatever it is, rewards, punishments. Um, and that's what gets you to do things. Um, I think part of the, why I don't like this distinction is that most human activity, pretty much all human activity, it is, the outcomes do freaking matter. It's not about the process. Um, when I'm writing a memo for work, I enjoy the process of writing. I'm a writer. I've written every day of my life for the past 30 years. I, it's a big part of who I am. Do I do it because I love writing? No, I don't write that memo because I love writing. I write that memo because I'm trying to get an idea across to our staff, who are teachers, and I want this idea to get across to them in a way that really lands so that they will educate children in a certain way that I think is really important for the outcomes that I'm trying to achieve for those children. And that's linked up to parents choosing us as a school and paying us money to send their children to school and being able to build more schools and reach more children with this money that they're sending us and reinvesting it back in R&D and my salary. And I have equity in this company because I helped found it. And ideally, I would like that equity to be, to be worth something someday. And um Am I thinking about every single one of those things when I write the memo? No, but I'm thinking about some of them and I can think about them if I need to like prioritize or sort things and all of them are egocentric to me. So all those things are good. Like the company making money is good. Parents being happy is good. Customers choosing us is good. Educating children is good. Children actually getting a good education in our schools instead of like some children get a good education and some children don't. Like really consistently making our schools really good. It's important to me. All those things are outcomes and consequences. Like which ones are extrinsic? I mean, they're all intrinsic in the sense of they all matter to me. They're all extrinsic in the sense of they're all outcomes in the world. I just, I don't think it's the right terminology. Um, and really everything is like that. Even things that children do, like little children are closer to being intrinsically motivated, like my three-year-old daughter than, than adults. But like, she cares about whether or not she's properly sorted these measuring cups that she's found in the kitchen. Like, and she's not going to quit until they're actually sorted. It's not just the process of sorting that she likes. It's it's the success. She wants to be able to put it back. She wants to be able to say, I did it. She wants to earn. She wants to do something real. Um, why children are drawn to practical life in Montessori is they want to really cook. They don't want to have a tea party where they, maybe they, my, my daughter loves tea parties to where she gets dolls and she pretends to give them tea, but she wants to actually be able to serve tea with fire and water and like to pour it over. And that, and that whole to, to be able to, children want to really do things and that's, and if they can't do them, they can't do them and that matters. Like it wasn't just like, well, I tried to make the tea and I burnt myself and I spilled it and I can't do it and it's all too heavy for me and I feel terrible. Like it's, it's not just like, well, at least I tried. Like intrinsically it was rewarding because it's what I wanted to do. It's like, no, I, this sucks. Like I couldn't make the tea and like, you know, maybe an adult can help me structure it so that I could do it. Maybe I could get a little bit, maybe I could come back to this later, but I want to be able to make tea. That kind of like real things, things in the world that matter to you is what motivates people. 
And what happens over the course of life is that you go from being an infant where like, oh my gosh, I can bang or splash in the bathtub and make something happen. And that's cool. So you can affect something like three seconds in front of you to like, you're an elementary student and you can think a week ahead. And you can think like, how do I want to plan my week? And in our schools, they actually do plan their week. Like I want to spend Monday on math and Tuesday on spelling. Um, but they can also think like this weekend, I'm going to do something cool. And how do I, how do I prepare for that? To like, a teenager who can think, they're starting to think about their whole lives and that's scary and that's why adolescents are weird and, and it's just they're newborns about their whole lives. Um, um, but, you know, they can also think about like a product, a theater production that's going to take three months to put together and orchestrating that and like, is that intrinsic motivation? And it involves a lot of different elements in the world and it all has to come together right and you care about the consequences and you have to do fundraising and you might get paid for it and you might get accolades and it can go on your college application and maybe that matters to you and maybe it doesn't. Um, like that's that's that the kind of expansion of the scope of your the things in the world that you care about impacting that you care about that are like genu genuinely integrated motivations, not like some authority figure telling you you should do this because it's good or bad, but like you care about these outcomes. Like that's part of growing up, and and a lot of what goes wrong in education is in development and growing up is some people don't get beyond the three seconds. <laughs> um, so like some people really struggle to, to care about outcomes at the level of a week or a year of their lifetime and like something you have to learn to do um, learn to care about and you should care about how much money you make over the course of your life and what you can do with it you should care about how good your relationships are over the course of your life you should care about some extent you should care about what other people think of you not in a fundamental way where like you let it push you around but like the impressions that you're making on people all of these are things that you could classify as rewards. So. I also want to talk about, I'm going to pivot this again, because there's another really big topic that I want to, I want to ask you about. Um, so you mentioned earlier when you were talking about how you said, you know, that there's a bunch of different things going on culturally right now that are hot topic issues. There's AI, there's the gender wars, there's all this different stuff. And if you lumped all of that together, it would be as big as education was in the, at the turn of the 20th century. Yep. But a lot of these things permeate education now. They're not education-centric, but they all get tied up in education. We talked about AI a little bit, and there's a whole separate conversation to have there that we don't have time for, but I think is very interesting. But one of the things that's very pertinent that at, is, is simultaneously everyone's talking at, about it, but at the same time, I think people are very scared to talk about it because it is a very sticky topic to get into is the culture wars and how they permeate education yeah. because they're they're there it's it's you know you can't really separate high schoolers especially from culture like they're as part of their becoming into full humans they're fully adult humans fully functional humans they're engaging with the culture they're immersed in it you can't separate toddlers from it that's what that's what covid showed us I mean. that's what i'm getting at is you can't like when you start to think about the the defining lines between education and culture, they get blurrier, not clearer. Like the harder you look at them, the fuzzier they seem to get. Um, and you you did a, a talk a, a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, I can't even remember how long ago, about um, some other people at Higher Ground about uh, 
the culture wars and 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 values in education. And you guys did two different nights. I attended the one in Austin that you weren't at, so I missed you all of your takes about this. Um, but I think it's a really important. I'm, I'm glad you guys are are building forums to have conversations about this because it's really important. But again, it gets really sticky really quickly when you start to even ask the fundamental questions. Not the surface level, obvious. Like should. Like, how should we talk about things like the gender wars in the classroom? But even more fundamentally, like, should culture permeate the classroom at all? Can you avoid it? Like, isn't education innately values driven? Like, can it be truly agnostic? Should education protect you from the culture or should it... Should it be actively immersing you in the culture as a preparation for life? It gets very messy very quickly. And I know this is a thing that you've spent a lot of time thinking about, talking about, actively wrestling with in the context of the schools that you're building. How do you think about the relationship on a very fundamental level? We'll get into the specifics as we go with this. But how do you think about the relationship between culture and education? Like, are they, like, how synonymous and, and, inseparably tied are they on a fundamental level so education is value laden and it's really like a late 20th century phenomenon that anybody doubts that um and we can kind of i'll say a little bit as to why that is um but education is value laden i think just in terms of the the question that you just asked like what's the separability of education and culture i think that what an education should provide, in, per, in particular a school, though you can do this at home too, but if you're thinking about education in the sense of like not like systematic learning, like like we're, we're looking at the learning, that's what education is. Like there's learning, and then there's like a systematic approach to this child's learning, to this, to this growing person's learning. Um, part of what a good education provides is a special, usually syn- at least partially synthetic culture a culture that's been carefully crafted in the learning environment, whether that's a school or a home or whatever it is, um, to emphasize a kind of subset of um, values available in the wider culture and to really highlight them and filter out the rest and make the ones that you're highlighting very salient and developmentally accessible. Um, so just you know, some of the things that we've talked about, like the idea that... Um, um, you know, human beings make the world around them and it's good to have agency. Like that idea is, is it's out there. It's not a majority position, but it's out there. And part of what education does is it takes all the influence that that idea has had on the world. Um, this idea of like human, you know, man, the creator, human beings, the creator, um, human beings, the authors of their own fate. And it uses that value to kind of to, to craft a culture, which some of which is in the curriculum, some of which is in the attitude of the educators, some of which is in the content, um, some of which is in the pedagogy, and kind of like bring out and make accessible in all sorts of ways that value, whether that's there's a pegboard in your house and, you know, or that's like the things that your parents and teachers tend to, tend to like center on and, and say are good. Like it's like, like, yeah, like you can play video games, yeah, you can watch TV, but like, oh man, you built the treehouse? That's awesome. Like, like, and there's a kind of pause. There's a valor, like, not like a gold star, but just like, wow, like, you know, um, like a kind of um, 
uptake of that as like culturally significant in, in the learning environment. Um, that's true in the curriculum, as we already talked about. So that that's a kind of value that you're using to filter possibilities from the wider culture and the wider world. It's not like I invented pegboards, so pegboards are something out there in the culture, but I've selected that for a very specific reason to highlight a very specific idea um, in the in the development of my children. Um, and everything is like that. I, I think I do think that as you get older, the, the goal of education is that you can live independently in the world that you exist in, like not in a bubble world. So there have to be increasingly kind of ramps to the wider world. Um, and I, I mean, there should be that when you're zero years old, but there should also be, I mean, by the time you're in high school, it should just be like you're out in the world living your life basically with, with some sort of minimal educational structure, you know, according to what students need. So, but like an elementary student, there's a lot more, I think, filtering and care that goes into the kind of curation of like what's optimal, what's kind of like culturally optimal for the classroom um, than for like a middle school student or a high school student. And so it, it kind of becomes more permeable over time. And if it doesn't, like if it's like a bubble all the way, I mean, I've seen, I've seen, I've met people who have been educated like this, where it's like, you know, they this used to be the parody of homeschoolers is that like you're growing up in the homeschooling bubble. I don't think that's a fair parody. I don't think it ever was a parody, but does it happen? Yeah, it, it happens. Like you, you can get children who are incredibly sheltered who like, you know, I had college students in 2012 when I was still a college professor who was like, this is basically their first time ever leaving home and meeting other people their age and using computers and things like that. And that's like, and, th and then you're also, this is the first time that you're learning about, gosh, who was, big in the culture in 2012, like Eminem. And like, I mean, there, there's just, there's like a, there's like a deluge of kind of ideas and things that like you kind of, it's like drinking from a fire hose. I don't know if that's really answering your question, but um, yeah, we could talk about the culture wars too. Well, my culture, my, my question was very broad to start with because this is a really yeah. big, <laughs> this is a big set of questions that I'm asking you. So education is inseparable from values. Anyone yeah. who says otherwise is missing important yeah, details about what education is. So everybody thought that education was value-laden for 2,500 years. And then basically World War II happened. <laughs> I mean, this, uh, this is like a way too simplistic picture. But um, um, people in the last half of the 20th century started becoming sharply skeptical of the government of government, of government in general, and then government involvement in education in a new way, and kind of countercultural when it came to, like, it, like you know, if it, like in ancient Greece, it was like, of course, the polis raises the man, like the city, the culture, like Athens is good, and and we have the best civilization, and so Athens should be in charge of the of the education of its citizens, and it should teach them about generosity and liberality and courage, and the Spartans thought the same thing. The Spartans were like, you know, we have the best city, and we should brainwash children into being child soldiers because that's the best way to live. Um, and that's, that was true of, I mean, that kind of pattern was true of early America. It was true, it's true of most societies. There's a kind of, I don't know, what what's the general more generalized version of nationalism. There's a, there's a kind of like patriotism of culture, of kind of like, Yes, like we like we want the values that we live to be part of a child's growing up, and it's natural that education would take over some of this function because education kind of is a like if you think of it as related to parenting or related to the task of helping a child grow up well. Like, of course, you want the values that you think are good for a child to grow up well. Um, and then you you go you come into the nineteen sixties, and 
um, a lot of people from across the political spectrum. I mean, the first big homeschooling burst in the 1960s was a kind of, what is it called, a horseshoe? When like two different sides of the political, two different extremes of the political mm-hmm. spectrum align. There was a horseshoe yeah. of like people on the far left and people on the far right who were just like, we don't like the status quo and we don't like what the government is saying. We don't trust it, whether that's because you think that the government is an industrial military complex kill machine sending our young to Vietnam or you think that it's because like you should be able to like not pay taxes and homestead off of the land in rural Texas or whatever it is. Like, like you, you started to get the more, the more radical people started to be like, we don't want the government raising our children. We don't trust the government to like, what does it mean that the government sets the terms for the values that our children are being raised with, especially in America, which has a, it's an incredible un, historically unprecedented diversity of value sets. I mean, and that's, it's a long part of our history, but this, I mean, it's become kind of more fractious over time, probably. Maybe not, but it feels that way. Um, and people people experience it that way. And um, so now it's like, what if you're, a, I don't know, like a Mormon and you, you send your kid to the public schools where like most of the day it's about like environmentalism and social justice. And I mean, you, you can kind of come up with more modern examples now. Like there, there's just so much chance for values clash. Um, and this is, we've really been in 50 years of this and it's, this is this kind of 19 or sorry, 2020 spike, which is when I really think we saw it spike is, um, in 2020 when the race stuff spiked, um, with, um, the protests and the riots that summer and, um, the, the calls for police reform. And now it's been mixed, mixed in with, um, kind of debates about trans ideology. Um, these kind of culture war spikes have. Um, yeah, they've definitely entered into the public school system debates. But I mean, even even aside from that, a lot of what's motivating people to go into alternative education is not, I mean, they might say, like some people might say like, schools are woke craziness and I don't want my child to have any part of that. But really deep down what they want is like, I want my child to get a Christian education or something like that. Like they, like they have, there's a value set that they have in mind and there's just, there's no way that you're going to get a Christian education in a public school. It's, it's illegal. Um, and so if that's what you want for your children, like you got to do something different. And um, yeah, that's the kind of recent history of it. So, so I think that, I mean, I do think that values are inevitably part of education. And if you try to not have, I mean, in the one, one response to the 1960s craziness was like, schools just won't, schools will just be value neutral. We get it. Like there are people with conflicting values or a big melting pot of ideologies. Schools will just be value neutral. And um what does that mean? Like it means, oh, you'll just teach math and reading and writing and you'll just teach the, just the kind of facts of civics and history and you'll leave everything else out. It doesn't work. Like it doesn't work. Um, it certainly doesn't work when you get to humanistic subjects like literature or history. What you're discussing is ideas and values. Um, there's no way to teach civics and not debate. Like by the time you get to middle school civics, like every single middle schooler is going to have opinions about whether or not America is good or bad and those opinions are going to be shaped by implicit value judgments of the educators. There, there's just... Um, there's there's no way to be neutral on this. Like the idea of kind of presenting out spreadsheet dry, arid, value neutral. I don't even want that. It this sounds boring. Like the the whole excitement is like, what are the who's good and bad, and what are the ideas here, and this is what children are into. Um, but even when, even with like math and illiteracy, like let's say that a child doesn't want to do his math homework. Like how do you approach that? That is a question of how do you approach discipline and a classroom management and what do you require of children? And, and if you say everybody needs to learn math, it's something you just have to do. And sometimes in life you have to do things that you don't want to do just because somebody tells you to do them and you just got to trust me. 
what is that value system? Like what is implicit in that? Um, that, that is not value neutral. Um, and then you can even get into issues of specific math pedagogy. Like is, you know, is the, um, does it matter whether or not you understand conceptually place value yourself? You have an independent understanding of place value or is it enough that you can do column addition and column multiplication? You can kind of churn through the algorithms. That's enough to get you through life. Like what really matters here? Um, or does it matter that you learn math at all because there are calculators now? Like how much does it matter for your cognition? How much how much do you need to kind of be able to do independently tool free? Does that does having that kind of independent understanding matter at all? Um, and if the, these are kind of epistemic questions but they're also moral questions. So yeah, I, I just think you're going to have to come down and have a position on these questions. And the question is just, A, what is your position? And B, and this is what we talked about in the talks, like, does that mean that you're propagandizing students? Like, does, does education not being value neutral mean that um, really this is a question of, like, who gets, what, what value system gets to students first? And, like, can you, like, imprint them like ducklings with your value system and then they'll be okay? Like, you know, you can release them into the corrupt world and like at least you've gotten to them first like I, and I don't think that that's the right way to think about it so what do you think is the right way to think about it um, I think about it as like very abstract and fundamental values things like agency like you can you can trust yourself and work can be meaningful and worth it and you can understand the world and there is good in human beings and there is good in yourself and you can find and center on that human greatness. Um, and that's always been true and it's true now. It's true in your life. These kind of like basic values. I mean, we have four like human, I just basically went through them, agency, work, knowledge, and humanism. Um, I think of these as moral values. Like they're not necessarily the things that would make a standard list of like, if you're like talking to like, I don't know, a classical Catholic or an effective altruist, like these wouldn't necessarily make the list um, or the list would look a little bit different. But I think of these as moral values and they're the kind of values that you can impart at the kind of habit and pattern level while still letting students think for themselves and even disagree with them if necessary. So uh, just to make an analogy, um, um, the First Amendment, um, the right to free speech, the right to freedom of assembly, um, this sacred right in the Bill of Rights. Um, it is not value neutral. You can look at that and you can say, this is the tolerance value. This, this the, what the First Amendment says is like, like you could have any value set goes. The, the principle underlying the First Amendment is the sanctity of the individual mind. It says individuals can think for themselves and, you know, to hell with everybody else. Like, like you can't, you cannot prescribe right and wrong, no matter how many people, like this is this is not a democratically abridgeable right, no matter how wrong you are. Like you, you have the right to be wrong because you have the right to be right. And those two things go together and that that, that rests with the individual. That, that is like a whole moral theory is embedded in that. But the implication of that moral theory politicized and embedded in, in the Bill of Rights means you can burn the flag. You can burn the First Amendment. You can disagree with it. It protects your ability to do that. And though, that's kind of how I think about education. There's a value set that is, in fact, inculcating skills and competencies and habits of agency in really deep ways in you. 
but it's not giving you an ideology. Like you're, you're, that's something that you have to make for yourself if you want to make one as a student. It's not like lecturing at you. It's not a catechism. It's not like you have to repeat these things. You have to say the Pledge of Allegiance every day, except the Pledge of Allegiance is to like, you know, whatever values you think are important in schools, uh, um, your country, your God, agency, like whatever it is. I don't think that you make students say the Pledge of Allegiance. What you do is you give them a good history curriculum, one that is not value neutral, but one that enables them really enables them to like challenge and disagree with that very history curriculum. And that, and there are some history curricula that don't do that, like that, that leave you either just too incompetent or too not knowledgeable about history to like have an informed opinion or that are like pretty doctrinaire that are like in both directions. Like you can get history curricula that are like America is good and the people that think it's bad are bad people. Um, and that's the message of the curriculum. Or, um, or you can get curriculum that say um, America sucks, and like you know, patriotism is for losers. And like, if you conclude otherwise, like, eh, like, you, like you're kind of like you're regressive, and it's kind of socially bullying you into having a view. I think that I mean, our curriculum is pretty pro-American, but it also gives you the facts that you need to kind of challenge that and and to you know raise those questions because there are real questions to ask about what is the meaning of certain things that have happened in American history and. Um, and it, it also gives you the resources to say, like, like you know, one day when you come across Howard Zinn's, what is it, the, the underground history, the people's, people's underground history, yeah, of the American, yeah, like, it, it, like, like you're going to come across that, and like you, you have to have the knowledge and the skills to evaluate it. And I don't think that almost no history curriculum gives you that. I mean, most people are just they come across that, and either it's like oh, this is the like rebellious thing that nobody ever told me and I'm sucked into it. Or they're like, oh, this doesn't seem, this seems bad. But they're not actually thinking about, they're not capable of thinking about like, what's the argument here? Is this, so he cites these three things, but he doesn't cite these three other things or it's kind of weird. The whole historiography is kind of weird and strident. Like how does this compare to like Gordon Wood's books, which is like the gold standard. And I read some of those in high school. There's the, that's mm -hmm. the kind of, um, that's a value-laden approach that says like, you have to kind of, be able to independently think these things through and there's a real cognitive process there. We could keep talking about this for a very long time and I'm sure we will continue this conversation in the future. We're going to have to do this again. But for people who are intrigued by the conversation we just had and they want to find more about you, more of your work, um, or more about the Montessori schools that you're building and running, where would you send them next? Um, so for my company is, I mean, this, the schools that we run are, they're guidepost schools. The company is higher ground education. We run middle and high schools called the Academy of Thought and Industry. It's all very confusing. The one stop shop is go to guidepostmontessori.com and, um, you'll see a bunch of great resources, including our schools. We've got over a hundred Montessori schools across the U S, um, our include from birth to high school, our homeschooling program, our virtual schooling program. We've got a bunch of different resources that are really great um, for you to look at. Um, and Matt's also a great Twitter follow. I'm going to plug your Twitter here. Yeah, at so I, you should definitely follow him. He's got great, <laughs> great education content and occasional really funny jokes about children and cast iron pans. <laughs> so, so I am very online. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at M. Bateman. Um, and uh, um, what else should you look to? We have a we have a kind of think tank. Um, part of what Higher Ground does is we have a think tank called Montessorium, like, Montes like if you turn Montessori into an element and added U-M to the end. Um, and there's a website, Montessorium.com, that has like hundreds of essays on the history of education and race in education and philosophy in education and technology in education and all the things that we kind of touched on. So you can go into a deeper dive 
and uh, some of the things that me or my colleagues think there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. This was really fun. I appreciate you taking the time. been listening to the Hannah Franklin podcast. Thank you so much for being here. If you are listening on Apple or Spotify, please leave a rating. Please subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, leave a comment. Let me know what you think. That's it for this week. I'll see you next week, friends.